Thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome back to most of you, and those of you who are visiting for the first time, welcome to our church, like Spence said earlier. We are glad you are here. Uh, we are in Acts right now, sermon series-wise, so if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 21, that'd be great for a phone app you have, that'd be great. This will all be on screen here, though, in just a second. Uh, Acts is a book about Jesus. It is a book about Jesus, uh, at least um, for the most part, indirectly, because it deals with the part of history, it's theological, theological history, but the part of history that uh, comes after his ascension. So the very first part of the book deals with kind of reminding us what happened when he rose from the dead and spent those 40 days with his disciples, eating with them, proving to, to them that he was alive. There was actually his body and not a ghost that was appearing before him, but actually his body and, and teaching them many things about how the Old Testament pointed to him and all kinds of stuff. Then he ascended. And from that point on, at the end of chapter one, I mean, it is all about Jesus in the church and the Holy Spirit just infusing uh, empty vessels, empty jars like us. And the Bible uses that imagery to show that we bring nothing. Uh, we are empty vessels uh, and impure and empty, but we, we need a filling, right? We need to be full of uh, something other than us, and, and that is God, his, his very spirit within us. And so it's a book about the, really the expansion of the church around, in that day, the entirety of the Roman Empire. And so we're approaching the end of the book where Paul, the apostle, who is one of the main characters in this book, outside of Jesus, actually the main character, but he is uh, continuing his progression towards Jerusalem. And he is, if you uh, have forgotten or if you're, if you're new to this book, he used to kill Christians and now he is a Christian. He, he ch changed from a, a Jewish, zealous for God, uh, uh, misguidedly guy who is killing Christians and now he is uh, a Christian himself who is uh, planting churches all around the Roman Empire and now he has been traveling to Jerusalem to preach the gospel to more of his uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who are not Christians yet, and to other kings and client kings and Roman governors and just people like the last part of Acts is going to be really full of that. And, and so we'll see that as we come uh, to that in the, in the coming weeks. He's going there, remember though, constrained by the Spirit. Uh, it said last week that was a phrase he used, I'm constrained or just moved by the Spirit of God meaning that God wants him there so that he might testify about the gospel before people there, like I said before, different kinds of people, but he is also intending to go to Rome because the spirit of Jesus himself said, I want you to testify about me before Caesar himself, like before um, Roman tribunals and, and all this stuff. And so that's how the book's going to end. Again, uh, we'll get there in the coming weeks here. But he's also in Jerusalem. Remember, we didn't talk about this. We haven't talked about this for a little while now because it hasn't come up directly in Acts, but He's going there to deliver a financial gift uh, given through him by richer Gentile non-Jewish Christians from other parts of the Roman Empire to the poorer Jewish Christian church. So it's kind of this cool extension of brotherly love saying, we don't know who your Jewish brothers are, but we, we know you're there and we love you. And Paul's kind of an advocate and he's saying they're poor and they're suffering and they're, um, they're in need. And so as he's traveling, planting churches, going back through these cities, that he initially brought the gospel through. He's collecting money to bring to these uh, poor Jewish Christians. So that's another one of his reasons to go to Jerusalem. But in his travels, he stops and he stays with other Christians. In today's passage, and this is kind of last week too, but he stays with other Christians and he has these notable exchanges with them, it, words and just descriptive kind of deed-based things as well, that are rich in theology. And all along the way, we continue to get to see these glimpses of brotherly love from Christian to Christian, glimpses of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, 
and, and relatedly, callbacks to Jesus' sufferings themselves. And so if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know what I'm talking about, but if you don't, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll catch us back up to speed here in a minute and let you know what I mean when, when I say that and what the Bible means when it gets at that. All right, so today's passage is our sermon's called Ready to Die. These are uh, right from the, the mouth of Paul, but they're really the words of Christ uh, spiritually through him. Uh, Acts 21, 1 to 16. Let's read this in full to begin. And when we, this is Luke speaking, Luke's the author of Acts. He's a traveling a companion to Paul, speaking in the first person plural there. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And then we found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. All right, so you see there at the end that Paul actually got to Jerusalem. So all these weeks now building up to this, he's actually here. And next week, we'll, we'll uh, read more about his actual arrest, how that transpires, and the rest of the book will kind of deal with these, uh, again, testimonies and speeches he gives about the gospel before these higher-up leaders. So what I want to do today is uh, talk about this passage from the vantage point of four different people in this order that we all see in this passage. Uh, Nason, who's this last guy here, talked about giving lodging to Paul and his companions. Nason first, then Agabus the prophet, then these unnamed disciples who urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but who love him and weep over him and pray for him. And then Paul himself at the very end, the fourth thing, who speaks back to these people that he loves and love him and says, you're breaking my heart, why, why are you crying? And we'll talk about that phrase as well. Again, to draw theology from this and not just passing history. And this is an important thing to know about the Bible. If you're brand new to it, it is theological history, not just history. And so the things that Luke pulls out here, if you think about it just as a, as a his, history, like text or something, it's kind of bad. You know, it's like, why is he pulling out these really just specific things and not giving these broad, sweeping deals? In one sense he is, but in a lot of ways, it's just very specific things that he's pulling out from their dialogue 
and from these exchanges that he has. The reason being for the sake of theology, for the sake of learning something about God and about the church and about our sin and about salvation, as we'll see here in a second, ultimately about Christ and what he's done for us. All right, so the vantage points of these four uh, people slash groups of people. Let's start with Mason, who shows Christian hospitality here at the end. So we'll start at the end, kind of work our way backwards a bit through uh, the passage. But this is one thing that's important to see. It, it seems like it's in passing. It kind of is. But there's a lot of rich theology here. Mason shows Christian hospitality. All right, so interesting guy here with a cool name who opens his house to other Christians he doesn't know that well. If, uh, if at all. As it says here in this latter part of the passage, other Christians or other disciples from Caesarea knew this guy, vouched for him essentially, and connected them for the sake of lodging. So from Mason's point of view, there might have been some risk here. You know, it's, it's, uh, Paul was not liked by the Jews at this time. Some of you guys know this. Like, we're going to see this really play out next week. But he's known as this kind of traitor almost. And people want to kill him. And so there's, there's a danger to Nason here associating himself as this Jewish Christian with, um, with, with Paul. And so it's at least that uh, there's risk here and danger. But we know for Nason, at least as a guy opening his home for this kind of band of, of men traveling from another part of the Roman Empire, we know at least it's an inconvenience for him. But all along... He gives us a textbook example of what selfless Christian hospitality looks like. And, and he does it in, in two ways, or two things here we, we learn. The first is that he gives us a picture of a real Christian like us, a sinner being saved by grace, loved Jesus, how he loved Jesus by loving his people. So the way Nason here is loving Christ is by loving some of Jesus' people, like Paul and Luke and other people traveling with him. This is all per Matthew 25 at the end of one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament where Jesus teaches on this matter. And he talks about judgment, the future, where, where people will be all before the throne kind of facing judgment before the final like eternal state uh, ensues and the new earth is, is freshly created and all that great stuff. And he talks in parable form and when he does this, he highlights key characteristics of what true Christians do with their lives how the Gospels inform the way that they live. And part of that has to do with love shown to other Christians. So let me read an excerpt of this. There's more, but a key excerpt in how it fits with Acts 21. Jesus says, For I was hungry, speaking to Christians in the end, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do any of that? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? The King Jesus will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. All right, so to, to connect this with Acts 21, Nason loved Jesus by loving his people. He showed a stranger, a Christian stranger, hospitality. And what Jesus is saying here is, when he was doing that, he was actively loving me. Brothers and sisters here, as Jesus says, are other Christians. Not just anybody, but other Christians. And so in this love that Nason is showing, he showed that he truly did receive the gospel. Like it wrecked his pride, 
It made him into Christ's image. It produced the fruit of love that didn't come from him, but came from Jesus. Because he knew he was forgiven much. And like Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, forgiven people love much. There's a direct correlation, according to Jesus Christ, with how much you see yourself as forgiven and how much you love other people. And Nason is just a guy who we can do the math here and figure this out. According to Christ, he just did. He just was. He has apparently this very healthily motivated uh, showing of hospitality and love for these strangers who are uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. All right, so that's, that's one angle. The other angle is uh, that Nason himself is a Christ figure here as well because he shows care and hospitality towards fear-filled, weary travelers, people like us. Romans 15, 7, Paul says this elsewhere in the New Testament. He says, welcome one another, church, as God has welcomed you through Christ. It's an it's a expression of show hospitality to one another as God has shown hospitality to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's layers to this. It's nuanced. On one level, Paul is like a Christ figure being loved by Nason uh, through, again, what, what Paul is doing. On another level, Nason himself is resembling Christ here too. So, so for us, lots to say about this, but for today's purposes, and, and maybe you haven't realized this before, but opening your home, making a meal, showing care for other believers on any level, what this is saying is a deeply spiritual and mystical thing. There is way more going on when you guys do this than meets the eye. That's what this is saying, way more. Even in uh, Matthew 25, the Christians admit, Jesus, we didn't realize we were doing this for you. Is that interesting? Like, we didn't realize we were doing this when we, when we showed hospitality to a stranger, when we gave clothes to another Christian who had need or, or a financial gift or water or whatever to another Christian. We didn't know we were doing this. And so the point isn't think harder about these things when you show hospitality. That's not the point, right? The point is Jesus is still acknowledging them that they did this even though they didn't realize it. Jesus says you were doing this even though you didn't realize it. So we can get like, you know, when it comes to hospitality, um, Elith and I wrestle with this too, but this is, you know, we can get preoccupied by cooking the cleaning, the preparing, or we're just tired and just don't want to open our homes or we're showing hospitality to a Christian that's kind of a stranger or we don't get along that well with them, but we're doing it anyway, you know? And it's hard and it's tiring. But unbeknownst to us, most of the time, we express love for Jesus when we do it, speaking to all of us now. So as Christians, when we do this, for other Christians, especially in our local church, could be outside though too, we express love for Jesus when we do this by way of his people. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what Nason is modeling right here. So we do that. We express love for Christ, but we also demonstrate by being Christ figures ourselves the greatest news in the universe by welcoming people as God welcomed us through his son's bloody death. So when we see this stuff in Acts, it's an invitation to do, to do two things then. One, model this and our church's by God's grace, really great at this. A lot of you do this all the time, and I'm staring at tons of faces here that I personally had dinner in your homes. So you were Christ figures to me and Aletha and my kids when you guys did that. And that so that's one thing there is model this. Think about your life intentionally. How do we use our stuff and our time? How do we uh, cook or buy or create a comfortable environment for other people 
in our homes. It's a deep, mystical, beautiful thing. And Christians have done it for 2,000 years for a reason. All right, so model it, but also see the gospel in it when you're on the receiving end. You know, so whenever you guys have been shown hospitality really well by someone, I mean, did your hosts ask you to take a shower before you came over? Did your hosts ask you to go serve in a soup kitchen before you crossed the threshold of their home? Did they ask you to mow their lawn before you came in? Do good hosts do this? Never, right? In fact, if they did, you'd like never go back, right? This is, this is the entire point. Did Nason do this to Paul? Did Nason require? Was it conditional? The answer is a glorious no, right? And that is the gospel. The, the idea is it's the same with Jesus Christ. He welcomes sinners unconditionally into his home. He has welcomed us in. Isn't that amazing? That's your story right now in this very room if you believe the gospel. That's happened. Past tense is happening in present tense and will finally happen visibly and physically future tense when he returns and remakes the earth. All right? Saved by grace, not by works. Christian hospitality has an opportunity to demonstrate saved by grace, not by works, almost more than anything else physically in, in this life. And that can look a thousand different ways. But think about it, do it, model it, and put Jesus on center stage when you do. All right, moving on. This is the meat of what today is basically kind of getting at. This is the unique part of the passage in a way, is when Agabus, the prophet, gives this strange prophecy. So maybe it's a question you had uh, reading this passage, it's, I know it's always been one of mine, is why the strange word picture, Agabus? Interesting guy, right? Comes down from Jerusalem to where they are uh, closer on, on the way up, but down towards Caesarea, and he says, look, I have a word for you. And he takes Paul's belt and he ties his own hands and feet and he says, this is what the Holy Spirit's saying right now through my words and through my physical actions. This, the, the owner of this belt, this is what will happen to the owner of this belt when he enters Jerusalem. He will be bound like this and handed over to the non-Jewish rulers of the area, so the Gentiles. This is what will happen. So one question is, why did he have to do this? What's with the physical word picture? Why couldn't you just tell him? Right? It's like Paul's sitting there. It's kind of a weird moment where Paul is like, you know, he says, the owner of this belt. And everyone's standing around like, I think he's talking about you, Paul. You know, like, the owner of this belt, just use my name. Right? Just a weird, it's all, just weird. the whole thing's weird. Right? But he says, the owner of this belt will be bound like this and will be, will be carried up and, and given over to, to the Gentiles. If this is the question, there's a long answer to this that would take hours to go through, literally. Um, that I'd love to talk more with you about. If you're interested, let me know. I mean, seriously, I'd love to do that. Um, but the short answer is physical symbols matter to God. Physical symbols matter to God. In fact, for all of us in the room, God cares more about symbolism than any of you or me. He cares way more about it than us. All right? It's a big part of how I read the Bible, how it hangs together. And clearly here, as a prophet of God, it wasn't enough just to say you'll be bound, but showing was also extremely important for Agabus and for Paul and for all involved. So God cares about it. It helps tell a story. 
And all these things serve to show how the Bible actually hangs together. And here's the thing. When we answer it this way, look at it this way, it's not the only symbol in the passage. The belt is one symbol, but there are lots of other symbols as well, and one big fat one in that. Like the belt is a symbol in this passage, so is this whole passage a symbol of something even more real and greater. So like the belt is a symbol, so is the whole passage one. And that is, as we've been seeing on repeat in Acts and throughout this series, it's a symbol of Christ's procession to Jerusalem to himself be arrested, tried, and crucified. We've been talking about this at length in recent weeks, and Luke, the author, is yet again making correlations between Paul and Jesus for us to see, one of which here is the mention of being bound and handed over to the Gentiles. So here's the correlation passage in Mark 10, 33-34, and also John 18. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem as well. Coincidence? It's not. Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. It's verbatim, linguistically, uh, compared to what we see in Acts 21. Who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then in John 18, 12, which talks about Jesus' arrest, it says, The band of soldiers arrested Jesus and bound him. There's that idea of binding here as well. Jesus experienced it before Paul did. So here's the idea. Paul's belt points to Paul's arrest, which in turn points back to Jesus' arrest and binding before his trial. And his binding isn't some passing historical detail like Paul's is. It's theological. And so when we talk about what binding actually kind of is and the purpose that it served in Jesus' arrest, uh, there are multiple layers to this. I'll give a couple, but kind of calling this the absurdity of it. So there's an absurdity level. But the absurdity and the beauty of Jesus' bond. So on one level, when you guys think about bonding or when you think about bonding or binding up Jesus, it's a silly attempt to control God, Right? Uh, you guys ever saw that last, I think, standalone super, Superman movie where uh, Superman was arrested? Remember that? He has this, there's this scene where he has handcuffs on walking down kind of next to the um, prison cells. You guys ever see that movie? Um, I had one nod for service, so I'm pretty sure it exists. But anyway, it's been, it's been a number of years. But that's an absurd moment, right? He's clearly giving himself over. He's allowing himself to be bound in that moment, right? And if you know the, the movie and the story, it's kind of obvious, but if you know, you know what he's doing there. It's the same thing here. There's an absurdity to it. This is the same Jesus who spoke to wind and waves and they obeyed him. It's the same Jesus who raises, who's going to raise himself from actual death just hours from this, this moment right here. He's allowing himself to, to be bound. But with that said, we ask about, that's the question, what is, this, what is the binding of Christ kind of telling us theologically? One angle is, It's symbolic or suggestive of how at the core of sin is humanity's attempts to demonstrate our strength before God. This is the core of sin. There are many ways to define it that can all be legitimate because the Bible does come at it from different angles, but this is the core. Our attempt to demonstrate our strength before God. See, we can bind him. We don't need him as much anymore. And then how Jesus willingly took on the binding 
in order to die for these feeble attempts at replacing God with our good works and ourselves. That's the first layer. The second layer is the fact that Christ was bound as a sacrifice. And so we know this, this, this is true from other parts of the Bible. We know it's kind of happening right here in the moment and, and it's coming. But the fact that Christ was bound as a sacrifice reminds us of people, like in the Old Testament, like Isaac, one of Abraham's sons, and Samson, a little bit later in the story, one of the judges. I'm not going to revisit those stories in full now for the sake of time, but those of you who know these individuals and know the stories, you know that they were both bound, literally, temporarily, before bursting forth in resurrection-like power, like in Isaac's case, or in Samson's case, in order to one last time crush the enemies of God's people, the Philistines, while giving his life in the process, which is a very Christ-like image as well. But here's what I mean. Binding is a part of the gospel. Binding all throughout the Bible comes before God doing something amazing. Binding comes before resurrection. Binding comes before God showing up and saving people. Binding is the way it gets there, though. The whole Bible tells us this and in, in predictory ways in the Old Testament and in an outflow way in Acts. In the middle, we have the ultimate expression of this, the one who came to ultimately be, be bound for us. To be bound for people who feel themselves bound by sin or depression or guilt or shame or the weight of the impossible to keep laws of God or how we haven't even lived up to our own expectations or standards of righteousness how we've hurt others and, and God at the same time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What this is saying is Jesus is a substitute. He's bound to show us that he would die for those who are bound, who are imprisoned, and who are having the life squeezed out of them by sin. That's why he was bound. All right, th the third uh, layer to this third category, or people group here, is the disciples. The disciples tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem to die. So they try and stop him. So these last two sections have to do with the interaction Paul has with his friends as he heads to Jerusalem to suffer. And maybe in his eyes die. He doesn't know this yet, but we see in this passage he's ready to do that. So one thing we see is Paul's friends' hesitance and concern and how they just flat out tell Paul not to go. This is a, a major theme in Acts, and we'll see here in a second elsewhere in the Bible, but a major theme in Acts. We saw it in last week's passage, we saw it in previous week's passage, and now here in verse 4, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is not a passing detail in the story. It's a pronounced theme, Luke has it on repeat. And the reason is, just like we talked about before, the reason he has it on repeat is to show us how it images the resistance Christ faced from his friends and disciples when he told them not to go on to Jerusalem to die as well. So another correlation here, and I'll show this from Matthew 16, and we'll, I'll mention a couple others just in quick passing after this, but Matthew 16 is uh, when he's, Jesus is talking to his disciples and Peter resists what, what he's saying. He's saying, you should never die. And so here's, what, here's how Matthew records it. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. This should ring bells in our mind right now with what Paul's going through. This is exactly what he's saying to the who in Acts 21. What are they called? 
disciples. Not just other Christians, but disciples, which correlates right back to the disciples when Jesus talks to them, the 12, in the earlier parts of the gospel narratives. But anyway, in Matthew 16, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day, then he'll be raised. But here's the key. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Probably a bad idea, but he does it anyway. He says, far be it from you, Jesus. This shall never happen to you. You shall never die. You shall never be crucified. We might think, wow, what an expression of love, Peter. How courageous and how wonderful of you to try to protect the Son of God from orchestrating the salvation of the world. Uh, But that's basically what, what, what he's doing, right? And this is not the first time Peter does this, right? If you guys read the Gospels before, you know that Peter is constantly trying to not just get in Jesus' way, he's trying to stop Jesus from being crucified. Massive theme in the Gospels. Think about when he takes out his sword when Jesus is being arrested, and what does he do? Cuts off the ear of one of the guys trying to arrest Jesus, saying it's his ear too, which probably really hurt the guy, but it's also, I think, mentioned it's just his ear because he didn't like do anything to the guy, you know? He didn't like kill one person. But anyway, point is, he has no power to save Jesus, even if he, like, that, that was what's going on. He's, he's failing. But he's like, don't worry, Jesus, I got you. Cuts off the ear of the guy and, run, get out of here. I've got this. And like takes on a massive or a legion of soldiers. Doesn't happen, right? Or think about when the time Peter says, Jesus, I will die for you. Aw. You know, and Jesus is like, really? Whatever. And kind of moves on. Or think about the times more figurative in John 13 where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet before his death and Peter says, wait a minute, this is backwards. You shouldn't wash our feet, Jesus. We should wash yours. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Lots of theology there, but again, basically what's going on here is there are multiple times Peter's trying to stop Jesus from his procession unto the cross. Kind of a la what Satan did in Matthew 4 when he said, He tempts him to a comfortable route of ministry, offering him all kinds of things, a comfortable life versus the life of suffering that would describe and summarize why he came into the world to suffer for us. But anyway, these are all very important exchanges, though, in the gospel storylines because they show us humankind's general incapability of understanding Jesus' true mission. All right, this is why they exist. If you haven't heard this before, this is huge. They show us kind of a la Peter here and a la the disciples in Acts 21. They remind us of it there, but they show us humankind's general incapability of understanding Jesus' true mission and how we, like Peter, love to fashion Christianity into some kind of crossless religion. How we say, Jesus is just about loving people. Isn't that the center? Or we say, We link him with a political agenda, or we link Jesus with a social cause, or we emphasize his teachings alone. We call him rabbi or teacher more than savior, or we talk primarily about us doing things for God. And yet, none of those things I mentioned necessitates his death. Crossless Christianity is an epidemic. It is extremely prevalent in our society, and sadly, even in many churches, but it isn't Christianity. Jesus makes that clear here. Look at his response to Peter in the same passage. His response is, thank you, Peter, for backing me up and loving me so much. No, he doesn't say that, right? 
get behind me, Satan. It's satanic to keep Jesus from the cross. It's demonic to to fashion Christianity into something cross-less, not focused on the cross and, and the empty tomb. You're a hindrance to me. Jesus is very upset here. And it's interesting what he's upset over. He knows this is his central mission. And so Peter is tempting him away from what he knew he came and needed to do. You're a hindrance to me. For you are setting your mind on, not on the things of God, but on the things of mankind, humankind. So the things of man are any version of Christianity that doesn't center on the bloody cross. Those are the things of man, the things of humanity. The things of God are centralizing the blood. That's what he's saying here. The things of man are, Jesus, here's something for you. Let me do something for you. Let me wash your feet. Let me fight your battles. Let me die for you. Peter is an expression of humanity, all of us, when he says this. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not doing things for God. The things of God are God doing things for us, right? It's crystal clear here. Jesus rebukes the things of the devil, which are to suggest that there is a version of Christianity that is crossless, and there just isn't. You can't have it both ways. So ask yourself, what is Christianity to you? And a lot of you guys, you've thought about this a lot. Think again. Think about it. Or if some of you haven't before, and that's great. We're glad you're here. What is Christianity? Is it Jesus on that cross dying for you? Dying for us? Or is it Jesus saying, serve me, fight my battles, give me a present, do enough good in the world that the scales will tip in your favor and maybe I'll let you in someday. I mean, this is like, there's many ways to fashion that with our words, right? But this is from the pit of hell and Jesus isn't mincing words. The disciples here in Acts 21 are reminding us yet again, which is why it's here, that this is a, a predominant way of trying to mold Christianity into something that's more comfortable, that's less offensive. Even here, they're like, they don't have a category for suffering and God's will. And it's like, they believe the gospel. With Paul, they're like, oh, the will of God can't, at least initially, the will of God can't consist of you suffering. And it's like, but they just believe that when someone came to their city and preached the gospel and said the will of God was to crush Jesus instead of you. He stood in your place. They believed it there, but they have no category for it in Paul's life. See, this is how easy it is to slip away from good theology. We do it all the time, all the time. But the Bible is here. God is here through his word to say, this is what it really is. This is the truth. This is what Christianity is. God sending his son to die for our sins, period. All right, then it goes on to the last part where Paul responds here and he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready to die? All right, so maybe at this point, uh, it shouldn't be surprising for us to realize that this correlates to Christ as well. It sounds eerily similar to this statement when Jesus, who is also going up to Jerusalem to literally die, he's on the road to Calvary at this moment, he turns to a group of women crying in Luke 23, 28 and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. 
What I want to do is allow these two verses to speak to each other, to inform each other, and then kind of out to us as well for the, the remainder of our time. So there's three layers to this. The theological significance of do not weep for me, which Paul says, a version of that, just like Jesus, they're connected. But again, first what's happening here is in both these stories, Paul and Jesus turn the mourners to a different reality. And that is that their respective deaths must happen. We've been talking about this a lot, even today, but also that the will of the Lord must be done, as the disciples say in Acts 20, which shows us some recognition that the will of God might be that Paul die and a reflection of how the will of God was that Jesus would die. Like again, Isaiah 53 says, the will of God the Father was to crush the Son in our place. All right, second on a higher level, when Jesus himself says, kind of adds this clause, he says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. What he's doing there is kind of turning the mirror back on them a bit to kind of turn them introspective and take the focus. It sounds weird to say it this way because we always say it the opposite way, but take the focus off of him a little bit in terms of weeping and put it back on what kind of led to this moment. In other words, in that moment for those women when they were weeping and seeing him carrying his cross on the way to Calvary, it was their sins and ours that he was carrying in that moment. So what Jesus is saying is, weep for your disbelief, your guilt, your shame, and your rebellion as you see it born on me. It's a wonderful statement here, actually. It's a very tricky passage for a number of reasons and context, but one thing it is, is it's helpful because it prevents us from seeing Jesus' death as a martyrdom or an accident. Because if it was an accident, Jesus would never say, weep for yourselves. In other words, weep for me, to spin it back on that for a second, if he were to say, weep for me, that would kind of suggest him saying, this is just about my unfortunate death. Weep for this because I didn't see this coming, or this is surprising, or this shouldn't have happened, or my life didn't end like I wanted it to. Weep for me. That's not what he says. He says, weep for yourselves, which is to say, This whole thing is about what Jesus' death means. What he's being bound by in the moment, our sin. And why he's experiencing judgment at all as a perfect man. He doesn't say to the women, get to work, ladies. One of his final words before he dies on the cross isn't, get to work. Or, go do what I'm doing, follow my example. As if it were just this, well... This, is, this kind of sucks, this is happening, but I'll use it as a teaching moment for my mentees. You know, go and just suffer like I am. That's not his last words. That's a weep for me kind of teaching. But he does say, look to me and weep over your sin. This is the hour of darkness. All right, then on a third related level, both Paul and Jesus care for others in their suffering. So saying things like, don't cry, Why do you break my heart and and I'm ready to die? This is a very interesting thing. Uh, It actually makes me think about, this this is what I was thinking about this week, personally, is myself being on my deathbed someday, watching my wife and kids crying, which is one of my biggest fears. So just confession time for a second. Like, that's just one of my biggest fears. Think about it a lot. It's kind of strange, but I do. So it would break my heart and be worse than the dying itself. 
And doesn't that seem to be what is going on here with Paul? Paul is brokenhearted over their weeping, but isn't crippled by or crying over his impending death. Even though he's probably terrified. It's the same with Jesus. And, and these words here um, aren't, aren't really Paul's words in Acts 21. They are, of course, but as we talked about last week, Jesus commandeers words all the time in the Bible to use them for his purposes. Jesus isn't chastising these women for crying. He's not mad at them. He's dying for them. And he wants them to be saved. So he turns them inward and asks them to put in context what was happening before their eyes. Saying again, don't weep for me as though this is the end for me and as though we were simply just friends or something and as though this is all an accident or as though the whole point of my ministry was to just be a good person and things just didn't end that well for me. Don't think those thoughts. Instead, weep as though I am bearing your sin by the will of God himself and as though I am the one who brings to life the dead. That's what he's saying. And so as we reflect that on this final thing, um, and I want to park here for just a second. We could spend a whole sermon on this. But this is the way Paul's retort ends to those who are saying, don't go. On one level, as a human Christian, he's ready to die. And let me just tell you, um, all of you guys probably know this, there are things worth dying for in life, right? There are things worth dying for. The gospel is the, the biggest thing worth dying for and giving our life for, without question. Paul is a great example if you're in a corrective to us, if we don't think that or live that way. Our life is not as valuable as the gospel. It's just not. Like last week he said that, my life is not valuable. I don't look at my life as valuable in as much as me finishing my ministry and my course. Okay, so that, that's one layer here. But again, remember, this is what you should do with passages like this. See it on a human level, then put that lens down, pick up the other one and say, where, is the, where are the words of Christ calling out to me now in this very moment? How does Paul, a sinner, said this? How much more does Jesus mean it then? That's a great thought. If Paul was ready to die, how much more is Jesus ready to die? How much more readiness does he have in his heart? And so pick up your Bible and stare at it and think, I mean, even right now as I'm saying this, this is not just me commenting on this is what I think is going on. This is Christ calling out to you, those of you who have ears to hear and eyes to see, I love you. I was ready to die for you 2,000 years ago. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're, you're, your life was so important to me that I spent the life of my son. I suffered for you. I was ready to do it all, which means I wasn't dragged against my will to do this. Again, don't weep for me. Weep inwardly, but then outwardly as like, like a barren woman, it says in Luke 23. Like a barren woman, rejoice because God is the one who brings life to the womb, physically and spiritually, but he means spiritually there. Life where there isn't any life yet. This is a good thing to know this. And it's a special kind of death. I'll summarize here. We'll, we'll close with this. 
to summarize where we've been, Jesus calls to us now in this room, I'm ready to die for you. I was ready. I had readiness in my heart to die in your place. A certain kind of death. It was a death that is, that is imaged in inconvenient Christian hospitality, symbolized in the binding of the prophets of old, like Isaac and Samson, resisted by the arrogance who think that we instead die for God through our good deeds, and yet accomplished nonetheless by a Savior who was resolved and ready to lay his life down for us in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you have you've died so that it would be written. None of these things would, would be in the Bible if you didn't die for our sins. None, none of them would. There'd be no church. There'd be no Paul. There'd be no conversion. There'd be no also rejecting of suffering, even by Christians. There'd be no Christian hospitality. None of these themes would be here because they are all outflows of the headwaters, rivers and tributaries that flow out of the main spring or headwaters or lake that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about you, not about us. Uh, Father, save us from our sins, uh, primarily the sin of binding you, trapping you, um, living as though we don't need you that much and in that way rebelling against you. Disbelief is, and pride in that is the primary sin. We all have it. As Christians, we have it. Forgive us. And God, let us face the cross with kind of newfound faith and trust and, and oh, for, as the song says, oh, for grace to trust you more. Oh, for grace uh, to put our faith in the gospel and what you've done for us, not what we've done for you. So like Peter, put away his sword. Jesus said, put away your sword, Peter, because you don't save yourself. You don't save me. You don't get to do that right now. I, God, am the giver of life to all things. And right now in this moment, I am giving my life for you. And salvation is found nowhere else. There's nowhere else we find salvation other than in that moment, Jesus saying, I'm giving my life on this cross for people who are bound by their sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with this song.